Things in the Morning podcast. This is a podcast with short episodes that are great to listen to while waking up and having your morning tea. If you are new here, I will just quickly explain how we run things here on the First Things in the Morning podcast. The episodes are categorized in different subject matter, so you know what you're getting yourself into from just looking at the title of the episode. Today is the first episode of the new mini-series White Coats, where we focus on anything medical. I suffered from a severe phobia for many years, but I never really learned how phobias work. So I figured it would be an interesting thing to take a look at, uh, to see how phobias work, why we get them, etc. So a bit of background about me. I was really, really terrified of snakes, to the point where I would have full-blown panic attacks on a weekly basis. If the thought of a snake wandered into my mind while I was, for instance, trying to sleep, I would lay paralyzed for hours, too scared to move out of fear of being bitten by the snake that was surely hiding underneath my covers. Other times I would wake up screaming from nightmares and my mother would have to shake out all my pillows and sheets just to prove that there really were no snakes in my bed. And even after that it would take ages for me to calm down. Just as a reminder, I live in the Netherlands. The biggest snakes here are just glorified worms and you certainly don't find them in urban areas. The fear was completely irrational. Nor did these things happen when I was 10 or maybe 11. They happened all the way up until I moved out when I turned 18. Rationally, I knew there were no snakes to be afraid of, but snakes made me unable to think rationally. I don't have the panic attacks anymore, but I still don't like snakes. They are untrustworthy and by just looking at them you can see that they are just badly designed animals. But I can talk about snakes now without having to put my feet up under the chair, like I used to do to make sure that any snakes under the table wouldn't get me. But I still pick my holiday destinations based on how likely I am to encounter a snake there, so I am still scared to them to a point where it kind of influences my life a little bit, but it's not like it used to be. Perhaps the weirdest thing is that I wasn't afraid of snakes when I was an actual small child. I remember drawing them all the time, because well, snakes are quite easy to draw for a five-year-old. And I wouldn't have been able to do that without freaking out ten years later. The phobia didn't develop until I visited family in South Africa. And I was told to, well, watch out for snakes. In South Africa, yeah, you have to watch out for snakes, but why was I so incredibly scared of snakes still when I came back to a snakeless country? While other humans, with the same human brain, who live in countries full of snakes, have no trouble sleeping at night. Why did my brain decide to completely irrationally focus on this one thing? To understand phobias, we must first understand fear. Fear is a process in your brain that makes sure you don't get killed all the time. It's a good thing. When something unusual happens, your brain kickstarts two different actions at the same time. One is a process that goes very quickly and the other one takes a little bit longer. As you know, The brain has all these different parts, that all have their own function. I will completely oversimplify the brain here, just to be able to describe to you what happens in your brain as a response to a threat. As it turns out, neuroscience is pretty hard, and it took me a long time to even get this basic understanding. So we're gonna work with an example. Say you are laying in bed, and you hear a sudden creaky noise. The first part of your brain To get the memo is your thalamus. It is basically the post office of the brain. 
it receives the information from your senses. So if you hear something or see something or smell something, your thalamus is the first to know. Then this part of your brain decides which other parts should know about it to do something with the information. It is your thalamus who starts both the processes. The short process is as follows. Your thalamus sends the information to your hypothalamus. This is the part of your brain that decides if you should run for your life, fight, or just chill out. The way the hypothalamus lets your body know what it decided on is by releasing adrenaline. This explains why people who are scared often get shortness of breath, a racing heart, and trembling hands. These are all um, side effects of adrenaline. All the hypothalamus heard from the post office was, hey, there's a creaky noise. And it has no idea if it's just some weird pipes or if there is an axe murderer walking up your stairs. But if it decides not to panic because it's pipes and it turns out to be an axe murderer, it means you will die. Whereas if you run or get ready to fight and it turns out that it actually was just some pipes, nothing but your pride really gets hurt. So naturally, it chooses to protect you and make you scared of this pos- for this possible threat. While this is going on, your brain is going through some more complex steps as well. Your thalamus did not only tell your hypothalamus about the sound, but also forwarded the information to your sensory cortex. This part is responsible for weighing out the possibilities. And when it figures out that, yes, using logic, the sound can both belong to old pipes in a building or to an axe murderer, it informs the smartest and this process really the most helpful part of your brain, the hippocampus. The hippocampus uses memories and such to analyze the situation further. It asks the good questions. Have you heard this sound before? What did it turn out to be the last time you heard it? Would it really be possible for an axe murderer to get in, even though you're, you only have one door with 18 deadlocks on it? Did you lock all the deadbolts? When the hippocampus is done and it has decided that, yeah, it's just the pipes, it is kind enough to tell your hypothalamus about this new information. During this longer process, your hypothalamus was working with limited information, so it has fully started freaking out by now. But with the new information from the hippocampus, it can calm down. This is how fear works. And this is why you sometimes get startled so bad that your heart starts racing, even though it only takes you a second to figure out that there is no threat at all. You can see why this is a handy feature, because your brain both figures out what is happening, but it also makes sure you have your guard up while it's figuring it out. Fear is a mechanism essential in survival. But what if fear becomes irrational or disproportional to the threat? There are two kinds of phobias. Simple phobias, also called specific phobias, are an intense fear of a specific situation or thing. This is what I had. I was incredibly scared of snakes, but that was the end of it. If someone asked, hey, what are you scared of? I could say snakes and it would need no more explanation. The other category is complex phobias. These are, as the name suggests, more complicated because they aren't focused on one specific thing. A common complex phobia is social anxiety disorder. People with this disorder are often not scared of one person or one specific kind of interaction, but of the whole process of being social for all kinds of different reasons depending on the person. Not all phobias are developed the same way either. You could be raised with a phobia. You could develop a phobia after a bad experience and, as is mostly the case with complex phobias, 
there could be a malfunction somewhere in your brain to cause such an odd response. Being raised with a phobia is pretty straightforward. If you saw your dad shrieking in fear and sprinting for the nearest exit every time a wasp got into the house, there's a big chance you will also get a phobia for wasps. Children learn how to respond to things from the people around them. And if your dad is that scared, wasps surely must just be tiny death machines. Some people overcome their phobias as they grow up and they realize that wasps, although they are assholes, aren't going to kill you. But others never really shake the phobia and they turn into dads who raise their kids to be scared and so the cycle continues. Your dad might have never been stung though, nor did you, yet both of you are terrified. Phobias of these are called non-experimental phobias. You are scared of something you have never experienced. A phobia developed after a bad experience would fall into the experimental phobia group. Often they are a bit more hardcore too, because your brain actually has a memory to prove that the thing that you are scared of is actually dangerous, or at least you perceived it to be at some point. Something that is often marked as a red flag that someone is or has faced abuse is their fear of loud voices. If someone has been abused and their abuser used to yell at them before they turned violent, you can understand how the brain would from then on interpret any loud yelling as a threat, because, well, remember last time? Even in situations where there is no threat, it might just be a teacher who is trying to have her voice heard over the chatting of the students. The brain might still interpret it as, as such. These phobias didn't develop because you heard some scary information, but because you experienced the scary thing firsthand and now have a disproportional reaction to anything related to it. Both of these examples are specific phobias. Although complex phobias can also be developed this way, it has also been shown that complex phobias can have their origin in the fear process simply not being completely the way it should be. This is why complex phobias are more often treated with medication, whereas simple phobias almost never are. It's harder to treat something with therapy if it really is just a gear going wrong within your brain. At the end of the day, the most basic description of a phobia is your brain being confused and thinking you might die when there's no threat at all. And that is why treatment is often focused on exposure to the triggering thing. This exposure therapy will get you slowly but surely used to parts of, the, of your phobia. And it will get you to overcome it over a long period of time, taking baby steps. If I had ever gone to therapy, they would probably first have me talk about snakes until I was slightly more comfortable with that. Then, perhaps, they would have shown me some pictures, then some videos of snakes. After that, we might have visited a reptile house, and in the end, I might have even touched a snake. I never went to therapy, because I was vaguely aware that this is what they might do, and I flat out refused to even start the process. But do as I say, and not as I do, please go see a therapist if you are dealing with a phobia that is taking over your life. I asked my doctor if she could give me some meds, and she wouldn't. Some doctors, for some phobias, do though, especially for complex phobias. The drugs commonly used are either beta blockers, because these block the stimulating effects of adrenaline, um, so it would help you get rid of the racing heart and the trembles, which might be the worst part of your phobia for you. And sometimes sedatives are used. 
but sedatives must be used with real caution. And I do understand why my doctor wasn't willing to give some 17-year-old her own supply. Because sedatives are extremely addictive, and it is very easy to get dependent on them. Therapy really is the best way to go, if you have a phobia that is ruining your life. Just because you shouldn't be scared of something, doesn't mean that you can just stop, because it's all in your head, like some people like to say. Some people just overcome their fears over time, like I did after I quit puberty and grew up. But I wouldn't wait to see it happen if I were you. Because you will feel way better way sooner if you get the help you deserve. So, that's all I have for the podcast today. It was really interesting to learn about the brain, and I hope you enjoyed this episode as well. If you did, please rate and review the podcast, wherever you are listening. And hey, perhaps recommend it to a friend. You can get a hold of me on Twitter, at InTheMorningPod, where I give updates about the episodes as well. Or send me any topic suggestions or other messages to firstthingspod at gmail.com. In previous episodes, I gave you the gmail firstthingspodcast at gmail.com. And I realized yesterday that that was a mistake. It's firstthingspod at gmail.com. That's firstthingspod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time on the First Things in the Morning podcast. <laughs>